my entire adult life, I've probably spent um, reading, researching, writing from college to seminary all the way up to this morning. And one of these days I'll have time for recreational reading when I'm in the convalescent home drooling. Um, and one of the books I have at home is about this thick, and it's on a gentleman I want to know more about, and that is Abraham Lincoln. The man fascinates me. Um, I came across a story some years ago regarding the man, and it did not surprise me when I heard it. Abraham Lincoln went into a veteran's hospital. I can't imagine anything more difficult for a president to do because everyone in that hospital is be there because of you. You are ultimately where the buck stops and you are the commander-in-chief. That has to be difficult. I don't know how any president handles that, carries that burden with them. And President Lincoln went from bed to bed to bed to bed to visit, to talk with each soldier that was there. And he came across one young man who was badly wounded. It, it, it didn't look good. And the president said, is there anything I can do for you? And the young man, not realizing who stood next to him, said, yes. I want to write a letter to my mom, but I'm unable to write it physically. Would you write it for me? I'll tell you what to say. And you just jot it down. And the president said, certainly. And the president's entourage started to move forward to do that, and he waved him back. And he picked up that paper and that little stub of a pencil and that massive hand of his that was so used to chopping down trees. And he took every word down that that young man said. And when he got done, the young man said, now, Sir, would you sign it so that my mom would know the kind man that did this for me? And then give it to me, and I'll try to sign my name. And the president signed his name and then handed it to the young soldier. And it was at that point that he realized who stood next to him. And he was so embarrassed. He says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I did. That's okay. But, sir, you're my commander-in-chief, and I was asked that's okay. Is there anything else I can do for you? And feeling more confident because of the graciousness and the kindness of this great man, the soldier said, yes, there is one more thing. Would you stay with me until I pass over? And the 16th president of the United States pulled up a chair, sat down, took that young man's hand and sat there hour after hour after hour until he passed over. If the 16th president of the United States could show such mercy to his soldiers, is it a surprise to us that the Lord of life shows compassion to his creatures? And thus we open up Mark chapter 8, verse 1, and this is how it starts. In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me for these three days, 
and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come a great distance. The word compassion notes a very profound emotion. It rises out of the deepest part of one's being. The noun form of this word, compassion, actually literally means spleen. In Luke 1.78, when it refers to the tender mercy of God, the word mercy literally means bowels, the inner part. Now, translators usually do not translate it that way because in the West, we don't associate emotions, our thinking, our volition with our bowels. We normally associate with our hearts. Gentlemen at Valentine's Day, do not take the literal version of the Bible and say, sweetie, I love you with all my bowels. It just doesn't work. So translators use what is known as a dynamic equivalent, because in America we use the organ heart. In Mark 8, the term compassion is not a noun, but a verb. It involves an extreme yearning, a tender empathy, an infection that leads to action. This verb is used 12 times in the Synoptic Gospels and no other time in Scripture. In Mark 141, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched a leper. He was healed. In Mark 6.34, moved with compassion, Jesus began teaching the crowd of 5,000 because they had no shepherd. Luke 7.13, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and raised a widow's son. And in our passage this morning, Mark 8.2, moved with compassion, Jesus will feed the 4,000 because they are hungry and on the verge of fainting. Remember, the first and the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto the first, love thy neighbor as thyself. Who is your neighbor? Just think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anyone who is in need is your neighbor. And in front of Jesus is 4,000 people in need. They're hungry, ready to faint. The scene takes place in Decapolis. Now, I'm basically a teacher, not a preacher, so it very frustrates me that I do not have a whiteboard up here with a map, okay? But I'm still going to be a teacher. Here's the scene. This is how I do it. This is the Sea of Galilee, okay? And over here, on the west over here is the Mediterranean Sea. Over here today would be Syria, down here Jordan. I do this because Americans and geography are an oxymoron, okay? (laughs) So there's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is down here in the area of Decapolis, just like the name suggests. Dec means ten. Polis means city. Ten cities. They're ten Greek cities. We're talking about Gentiles. So in this region right here, he's down here in the south, which would be in the southern part of Syria and the northern part of Jordan today. A huge crowd had been at the feet of Jesus for three days. Now, personally, I think the force that brought the crowd was twofold. One, Jesus' reputation. The Lord attracted people by his words and his works. People would say, no one has spoken with such authority. 
as this man speaks. No one does this type of work. But the second reason, and you may disagree with me on this one, but I think the second reason there was a large crowd was because of the Gerasene demoniac. Do you remember in Mark 5 when Jesus expelled the demons from the man who ran around tombs naked? A little strange. Uh, he was violent, broke chains, screamed a lot, cut himself, and was possessed by a legion of demons. When Jesus arrived, he threw the demons out of the man, and the demons went into the herd of pigs and over the hill and into the water. What is so touching in this episode regarding this healed demoniac is the man's heart. He implored Jesus, if you remember when this was covered a couple weeks ago, he implored Jesus to join the twelve. He wanted to be a genuine, literal follower of Christ. But I think the Lord went one better than his request. He commissioned the man to be, in a sense, the first missionary to Gentiles. He appointed him to testify throughout Decapolis. In fact, Scripture declares this. Jesus' words, Go home to your people and report what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he sent him away, and he began to proclaim in Decapolis the great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. The townspeople seemed to be hard-hearted. They wanted Jesus to leave. But it seems like the people outside the town were fascinated and astonished when they heard the words of this healed demoniac. They were impressed by Jesus' mercy and majesty. Early in Jesus' ministry, he notes the difficulty of proclaiming the gospel to those in your backyard. Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Three guesses where he said that. Nazareth, his hometown. I have found, and you, your experience may be different, but it's sometimes difficult to witness to relatives, to neighbors, and I'll go one step further, even people in the United States. I don't mean everybody. When the Iron Curtain dropped, a group from the Master's College, now university, went over to Kazakhstan, team missionaries. They asked if I would go with them, and it was quite a blessing to go. I'm not an evangelist, but we're able to stand out in parks and share Jesus Christ. People would respectfully stay there the entire message standing. And then when the message was done, come up and ask questions. Now, when I spoke, I was always translated into Russian because you know, I, I barely know English and I don't know any other languages. Uh, valley talk, dude. Um, we went into prisons. Of course, you do have a captive audience there. Um, we went into public schools, something you cannot do in the United States, and we shared Jesus Christ. And I think the greatest blessing is to walk into old communist buildings. One had a 90-foot mosaic on the outside of Lenin, and to walk inside that building and to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ there was an openness. 
people came forward afterwards, not necessarily to give their life to Christ, but they wanted to know more. I was absolutely amazed. Now, whether that atmosphere still exists today, 25 years later, I don't know. Two years ago when I was in Taiwan in my guide, and I think I mentioned this in uh, uh, Apologetics when we're covering that, my guide says to me, I was only with him two days, he said, you must return. I'm going, and why? He said, everybody here talks politics, if you're familiar with the, the controversy between Taiwan and mainland China. Everybody talks politics here. You talk religion. Nobody talks religion here. Please come back. It was very difficult for me to get on that plane and leave when somebody's inviting you to stay and talk about Jesus Christ. An openness that I was quite surprised. When I've gone on expedition ships, the hardest people to talk to about Christ are Americans, not the waiters that come from China, Indonesia, and the Philippines. There's a lady that sat next to me on the last trip I was on, American, and she sat down and she goes, Hi, Mary, you're always reading and studying. Um, and I happened to mention to her that I, I've discovered that people don't seem to talk very much about deeper things such as worldviews and so forth and so forth. And she folded her hands and she says, hey, give me evidence of Christianity. So, okay. Um, so, I mean, it was a joy to do that, but just the body language was amazing. And then another gentleman sat down and she looked at him and she said, Marty believes that not many people want to talk about worldviews. This gentleman turns to me and says, my experience is only Christians are the ones that don't want to talk about deep things and worldviews. Later, he got up and left. Um, but the waiters, oh my word, to be able to talk now, I don't have a lot of time to talk with waiters. They can't sit down and you know, they lose their job. But the greatest joy was actually to talk to a gentleman from uh, China, a gentleman from Bali, a gentleman from the Philippines, and to give them small carry little Bibles with me of maybe just John or Mark and Romans and so forth, or just sometimes the New Testament. That openness. Uh, that's why when the, when the Turners, yes, heading towards Albania, yes, yes. Um, I don't know if there's openness there, but I'm excited as they take off. So this once demoniac is now a witness for Christ, and 4,000 show up to hear the eternal words of Jesus Christ. The man who desired to be a disciple is making disciples. Oh, that's great. Through, though his knowledge was probably limited, his heart wasn't. And when Jesus saw this remarkable crowd was hungry and on the verge of fainting, he verbally said to the twelve, I feel compassion for them. Now what's unusual here is that normally the gospel writers will describe Describe the attributes of Jesus. In this particular case, Jesus verbalizes his emotion. He verbalizes his gut-felt empathy so, catch this, so the disciples will eventually share the same compassion. This is true discipleship, where the master invests his lives into others, and it's just absolutely fascinating to me as I, I read through Mark to see the walking seminary. 
Jesus taught the 12 by word and by example, so his disciples would later make disciples by words and by example. Discipleship is not meeting with somebody once a month and going over propositional truth. It's learning the passion that that discipler has for Christ. Now, Jesus wants his disciples to take seriously the problem that's right in front of them. 4,000 people hungry. He wants them to have compassion. He wants them to respond. And so he simply makes a comment. Now, I had to pull a whole section out that I was going to cover this morning because uh, I find it interesting I have this in front of me, um, the time. And so I had to pull it out because I knew I wouldn't have enough time. But one of these days I'll share with you Jesus' method of causing people to respond. It's an excellent way in terms of witnessing. So Jesus throws out this to the disciples. Hey, we need to feed the crowd. He just throws it out there. And they turn to Jesus. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Now, on the positive side, the disciples recognize their own inadequacy. That's the good news. On the negative side, they are slow to call upon Jesus to intervene in this crisis. If I may use a sports analogy, it's as if Jesus throws them the ball. We need to feed these. And instead of taking the ball and going down and making a basket, which means they come to Jesus and say, we know you can do it. Oh, no. They take the ball and give it back to Jesus. You see, Jesus reveals a strong emotion over the present situation, so the disciples respond. And at this particular case, their faith does not shine brightly. In a sense, they drop the ball. So Jesus asks, how many loaves do you have? Light goes on. Hmm. Oh, heard that question before. Feeding the 5,000? Hmm. Yeah, he asked that same question now. And I think they begin catching on. As Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves, Jesus is going to feed the 4,000 with seven loaves. So the story ends. Jesus is sufficient. The crowd was satisfied, and the disciples had seven extra baskets left over. When you're covering this episode, please, I beg you, do not use your speed reading. These 10 verses be in the crowd. Hear their stomachs growling because they're hungry. Know Jesus' heart. Reflect upon his words. Observe the disciples' response to Jesus' statement. Watch the Lord's actions and be stunned by Jesus' mercy and majesty. Sometimes people tell me how they're on a reading schedule. You know, I... I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and so forth. May I be rude just for a second? I don't care about your reading program through the Bible. What I do care about is what episode in Scripture caused you reverent fear. Where in the Word were you astonished? 
Which passage brought joy to your heart and tears to your eyes? What verse humbled you as you watched the Lord's mercy and majesty? That's what I care about. One Christian came to Howard Hendricks, who was an educator at Dallas Theological Seminary, and said, I have gone through the Bible. To which the professor said, yes, but has the Bible gone through you? In other words, have you been transformed by pondering the beauty of Christ? One of the most common words in Mark is amazement and astonishment. Why is it that the pagan crowds were surprised, startled, and stunned as you go through Mark, but many Christians have lost that awe, that amazement when speaking about Jesus' earthly life? Why have they turned their study of the Redeemer into a lackluster pursuit, void of all emotion? Some Christians have even become jaded about the cross. I was in a church some years ago, and the pastor was concluding the service with communion. And he had passed out the bread, and after eating the bread, he began closing the service. And the elders had to whisper, the juice, the juice, you didn't pass out the juice. So the pastor smiles, looks up, and he goes, ah, I forgot, I was thinking of the football game this afternoon. Oh, think about this. Do this in remembrance of me. Not do this in remembrance of the upcoming football game. How sad is that? Now, Jesus enters the boat and sails to the district of Dalmanutha on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. The teacher comes out again. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, oh, how'd you do that? You are amazing. I, <laughs> you caught on. I'm just ignoring, you know, in, in my own coma. Uh, Okay, it is up there. Um, <laughs> I feel like a seventh grader. <laughs> this is like, all right. You had to be careful not to step on a seventh grader and ruin your shoes. Anyway, um, anyway, De Decapolis is down there. <laughs> I have to still do this. Decapolis is down here. Dalmanutha is up here. So Jesus is going to go from the south, southern, mm, eastern shore to the northwestern shore. He's not going to be there very long. And then they're going to go over to the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Thank you, by the way. That was amazing. Um, now, Decapolis and Dalmanutha is going to be quite a contrast. Jesus leaves a warm-hearted crowd of 4,000 people and he steps ashore to find a few hard-hearted Pharisees. Let's take a peek at these few verses. Scripture records the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. It just boggles my mind. They want another miracle? Did they want a miracle that was super-duper like... The Old Testament, when fire came down, 
during Elijah's time and burnt up the sacrifice, the dirt, the rocks, and everything around it. Is that what they wanted? Jesus' miracles, as you notice, are all restorative. They help the needy. To be blunt, the Pharisees' request was disingenuous. Their motive was not to understand, but to test. They sought not to believe, but to discredit. Now stop and notice Jesus' emotion in verse 12. Again, do not read too quickly over this. Mark is disclosing to the reader what the disciples heard and saw. Scripture records, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. The word sigh means a a deep groan of grief and indignation. It comes from this inner part, this inner being, that the Lord expressed a very strong sentiment. He uttered pain and disapproval. Now, if I'm going to go back to this. If you're mentoring someone, if you're discipling someone, help them reflect upon Christ. Help the one that you're discipling and teaching see Jesus' rebukes, groans, tears, exhortations, anger, grace, patience, compassion, prayers, and his method of teaching. Help the the one that you're discipling not only build a sound theology, but help them step back and see God's beauty. Help them be on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and be stunned at what he sees and hears. Help them be mesmerized by the words and the works of Christ. Last week I shared with you I had a chance to, to travel to the Arctic. Uh, a fascinating place. I, you know, I was able to stand on the, on the Arctic ice pack. We went beyond the 80th parallel. If you ever see a globe, and at the top you'll have one circle like this, and the 80th parallel is at the top, and in that 80th parallel is the ice pack, the Arctic ice pack, and it was fun to be able to stand on that. But to be honest, the reason I wanted to go is polar bears. I wanted to see polar bears. (laughs) They're they're beautiful. Um, And we're able to see 12 different locations in nature. It was great. What normally this expedition ship would do is they would go out twice a day, one in the morning and then one in the afternoon. What they would do is uh, in Zodiac, scouts would go out first before any of the passengers were ever go on land. Scouts would go out and they would uh, comb the whole area before they ever landed, always looking for polar bears. If there's one polar bear, you do not land. And then once they landed, these men would go up on the hill with high-powered rifles, always looking for polar bear. Then uh, we would be allowed to go ashore. Like I said, sometimes we weren't allowed to go ashore because you'd see a polar bear. Now, the fun part of that is that you'd get in the Zodiacs, you'd stay in the Zodiacs, and you'd buzz back and forth watching the polar bears. And that was the kick. Sometimes they'd just they'd be eating, you know, tearing a seal apart. Sometimes they'd just be sleeping. They looked so comfortable, you know. Of course, who's going to bother them? Um, and one day, it was afterward the second time that we were out. We were eating dinner, and over the PA system said, the bear that we saw sleeping is now up and walking along the shore. We're going out again. Now, that doesn't sound like a big thing to you, but um, to do this, 
the, the cranes have to take these zodiacs from the top of the ship and, and drop them in, into the ocean. And then you, when you get dressed to go out in the, in the Arctic, I have five layers of clothes, two gloves, an Arctic hack with coming down here, a uh, wrap around the neck. I had waterproof pants, mud boots all the way up to my knees. It's quite an ordeal. And they don't know once you get all in, finally into these zodiacs and head towards the shore if the bear just goes over the ridge and you can't see him. <laughs> Fortunately, this one did not. He went over to a carcass of a, de uh, of a decaying whale and began ripping it apart. It was absolutely fascinating. I, I didn't realize the paws on those bear on the polar bears are huge. And it just scrape like this, and then bring it up like this. And then I have one shot, because I have a zoom on my camera, of him going down and grabbing the meat and then bringing it up, and I have a picture of it, just meat hanging down there. We were all mesmerized. Nobody's going, eh, are we done? Oh, no. He's just 45 minutes. Like this. And of course, we're at a safe distance, so and so forth. We're in that boat. Now, the reason I mention this is this is the same intensity we should have when we watch Christ in the narratives. Think about it. The polar bear along the shore of the Arctic was fashioned by the one who was on the shore on the Sea of Galilee. You need to approach Christ with that type of thought. During the three-year seminary training, the twelve heard propositional truth, but they also experienced the heart of the Son of Man. Yes, the disciples heard firsthand the magnificent Sermon on the Mount, but they also saw Jesus' emotions, his emotions in the astonishment of the faith of the centurion. They saw Jesus' emotions in his gut-wrenching empathy for a widow's condition. They saw his emotions and his deep mercy towards the crowd who was hungry. And now they see his emotions and his exasperation over the Pharisee's heart, hard heart. So Jesus groans in his spirit. By the way, later in Jerusalem, he weeps over them. Consequently, the Lord refuses to give the religious leaders another sign. You see, each time that they hear his word and turn solidifies their cold hearts. Each time they see a work of Christ, the messianic signs and reject it, they simply seal their destinies. So Jesus does not even continue to harden their heart. He simply leaves. And he vocalizes his sorrow. Why does this generation seek a sign? This generation not only refers to their hearted heart, but I think it refers to anyone during that time that had the same attitude as the Pharisees, their self-righteousness. This short episode of three verses ends in judgment. Watch what it says. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Leaving them. He came to the 4,000 and fed them and taught them. He left the Pharisees. When I read that, I thought of Romans 1. Three times, Paul writes, God gave them over to their lusts. God gave them over to their degrading passion. God gave them over to their depraved minds. 
When a person wants God to leave them alone, eventually God will answer their prayer. Ultimately, hell is that answer. Paul defines hell this way in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Hell is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. This is why the Lord sighs. Because of the Pharisees' blindness, because of their visual impairment, is both dangerous and damning. Sadly, Jesus and the twelve climb back into the boat and travel to the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. As they're sailing, Jesus provides two cautions. Watch out and beware. When Jesus says something like that, everybody should be paying attention. He alerts them to the devastating philosophies of the Pharisees and the Herodians. You're familiar with the Pharisees. These people are characterized by self-righteousness, pride, and hypocrisy. They're a group who never understood their lostness, never understood their depravity. The Herodians, you might say, are on the other extreme. They're characterized by self-indulgence. They're basically hedonists, really love pleasure and power, and really don't consider eternity in their philosophy. Both groups were self-directed, self-impressed, and self-deceived. In alerting the disciples, Jesus uses a metaphor. He says this, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven was old fermented dough, and you'd take it and you'd put it in new dough and then put it in the oven and just watch the bread fluffy. Leaven generally is a neutral term. Based upon the context, we'll tell you if it's used in a negative or positive way. Most of the time, it's used in a negative way. It became a metaphor for a spreading influence, a permeating power. And Jesus is using it in a negative way regarding the Pharisees and the Herodians. How interesting. Instead of listening to Jesus' caution, the word leaven causes the disciples to think of food. Does that sound like men? Food? Did somebody say food? Food? Uh-huh. Leaven? Food? How sad is this? They become so distracted. They became more interested in lunch than eternal matters. Disappointed in the disciples' obtuseness, our Lord shoots like a machine gun, eight questions in five verses. Watch this. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? Oh, you could just see the disciples in the boat. Oh, missed that question. Oh, that one got two times. Oh, got that one. It's like a gaddling of questions. Think about it. These disciples were worried who will secure, who, who's going to give them lunch? Who's going to give them food? Think who's in the boat. 
the one who fed the 5,000, the one who fed the 4,000. They're going, I don't know. We forgot the baskets. We left the basket back there. What are we going to eat? I don't know. I'm, what are you hungry for? And Jesus is warning them. He's teaching them. And they're offering food, food, like this. So Jesus asks two simple questions. Now, in education, this is called low-level thinking, okay? <laughs> he has to bring it down to their low-level thinking. It's called direct recall. Okay. Teachers, sometimes we use direct recall, but hopefully you go beyond this to analysis, synthesis, and so forth, contrast. But this is direct recall, so he brings it down to their level. And he says, do you remember how many baskets were left over after I fed the 5,000? You could just picture Peter, 12, 12, like this. Andrew, you know you should raise your hand. Do you remember how many baskets were left over when I fed the five or the four thousand? You answered the last question. Seven. I got that one right. The problem was not that the disciples couldn't remember the details of the miracles. The problem was their spiritual dullness. They did not, this is what you want to capture, they did not contemplate who created the bread. They had encyclopedic knowledge of the events, but it didn't touch their hearts, it didn't cause awe in their souls, and it didn't bring comfort to their spirits. These miracles were just neato, kino events. So the disciples moved on. What's for lunch? They failed to ponder the implication of the miracles. Put otherwise, they did not take time to reflect upon what they saw. They simply walked away knowing the facts of the miracle and missed the miracle worker. Hmm. My fear is that Christians today read about Christ and don't grow closer to him because they don't read slowly and they do not ponder deeply Jesus in each episode. Tragically, the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee and they neglected the fact that the one in the boat was the great baker, the gracious provider, the creator of the universe. So the Lord asked them, do you not yet understand such disappointment? As I sat in the boat with the disciples and it got crowded, move over, Peter. Hi, Andrew. Who are you? As I read and listened, this, I wondered how many times do I read the word, grasp the facts, and miss the Savior? Psalms 4 4 says this Tremble and do not sin. Watch the next part. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Meditate. Ver, er, Psalms 46 8 Come, behold the works of the Lord. Verse 10. Be still and know I am God. Just be quiet, listen, contemplate, reflect about who I am. A young man that I had at this school, Leon, was an, inter was an international student from Hong Kong. Great young man. He loved the Lord, went on a missions trip uh, to uh, Dominican Republic with the school and all. 
and he graduated from here and returned back to uh, Hong Kong. <coughs> this was several years ago. Well, just a few months ago, I got an email from him saying that he was coming to Los Angeles to revisit his friends here that he had made at uh, Heritage. And could he hang out with me for a day? <laughs> it blesses my heart. Why do you want to hang out with, you know, a guy that's almost dead? But it's a <laughs> blessing, you know. Um, and it was fun being with him for that day. Then with his friends, he went up to y Yosemite. And he sent me a postcard from there. I didn't know people still sent postcards. <laughs> but he did. And on the, on the outside, it was Half Dome. Let me read what he said. This place is mesmerizing with its display of God's creation. I cried watching the sunset at Glacier Point when his might is clearly shown, and there's nothing I can do but to be still and in awe. David in Psalm 8 writes, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? David concludes a psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Interestingly, Leon from Hong Kong and David from Israel both watch the handiwork of God and are in awe as they just remain still and observe and take it in. I'm excited when Christians have a genuine desire to see application in a passage in the Holy Scripture. My concern, though, is sometimes we can jump too quickly from reading to application and miss the beauty of the main character, If we jump from reading to application without being in awe of the Creator, then the Bible becomes a workbook of ethics. Application without wonder is moralism. Application without awe is ritualism. Application without glory is coldness. I was going through my garage, and teachers collect things over the decades. They're just tons of stuff, and so I decided to you know, go through it and toss things. And I came across a bunch of cards, Christian cards that somehow I collected. And this was one of them. And at the top of it says, my daily moral inventory liabilities. Well, that's an uplifting thing. Watch for, and it gives a whole list of sins. Watch for anger and self-pity and self-justification, impatience, hate, resentment, and so forth. There's something troubling, though, about this card to me. It, it seems like it reduces Christianity down to a bunch of qualities rather than focusing on Christ. The last day I was jotting down some notes for this passage this morning. I got an email from a couple who were going through a difficult time, and they're forced to wait upon God. But in the email, they, they said they had read through the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, and they said they were reminded of God's sovereignty and what that meant to them. Now, this couple could have gone through the story of the life of Joseph and learn from Joseph's life how to forgive and, and how to overcome sexual temptation. You can learn those lessons. But they learned a greater lesson from God's life, the blessing of his providence, that he, in the midst of hardship, cares for them. So they were comforted by seeing God's splendor and providence in that story. 
the Lord said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation, you have great deeds. You work hard. You persevere. You eliminate false teachers. You're discerning. You endure for my sake. And then, but, oh, this is not a good conjunction. Okay, at this point, mm -mm. but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Again, another powerful indictment. They had a lot of good works. They just lost the proper motivation for those works. If we do not read the Bible slower and ponder longer, then our genuine worship will dry up, it will become a routine, and our affection will fade. There was a lady that was burned rubber into the Yosemite National Park. She parked. She runs over to the old park ranger. I only got an hour. I only got an hour to see this Yosemite National Park. What should I do? What should I do? The old ranger goes, oh, just one hour. If I were you, I would just go over to that park bench, sit down, lower my head, and cry. <laughs> we cannot be like this, this lady at Yosemite. We do not want to rush through the Bible for the sake of knowing Scripture and for the sake of applying Scripture. Rather, we want to ponder Scripture so our wonderment for God just soars. The application will come. No wonder why Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Do you not yet understand? Jesus was grieved over their spiritual blindness, yet he continues to teach them. It wasn't by chance that when Jesus went to the northern shore, so we've gone from, and now we're up to the northern shores up there, it wasn't by chance that after they got off the boat, a blind man was brought to him. Very interesting. Think of what just preceded. Blind Pharisees and half-blinded disciples. Twice on the boat, Jesus referred to the poor vision of the disciples. And then suddenly a blind man is brought to Jesus. Only Mark, only Mark is the only author that lists this particular miracle in his gospel. It's unique. Only this time did Jesus use a two-stage approach to do a miracle. The reason he did this, to teach the disciples a lesson. Watch how Jesus uses this two-stage to help them understand their blurred condition and their future healthy condition one day. Our Lord touches the blind man, and he goes from blindness to blurriness. Normally when Jesus, every time Jesus did a miracle, it was perfect. It was never two-stage. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And then he asked the man, hey, can you see? The guy goes, whoa, I, I see men, but they look like walking trees. Blurt. Jesus touched him again, instantly. 20-20 vision. 
Jesus illustrates to the disciples what he's been talking about with them in the boat. They watched Jesus feed 4,000, but they were half-blinded about the one who sat next to him in the boat. So Jesus, being the great ophthalmologist that he is, heals a blind man while teaching a lesson to the disciples. Eventually, their eyes will be fully opened, and the disciples will clearly see as they watch the Lord, listen to his words, ponder his deeds and teaching, worship him in awe, and obey in wonderment. Bruce Thielman, pastor at Glendale Presbyterian Church many, 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 many years ago, told of a story of Dr. Miller, a missionary in Africa. One evening, Dr. Miller went outside to the outhouse. There was no lights, no electricity. He went out, <laughs> you might say blinded, to the outhouse, sat down. And while he was seated, he felt something coming up his leg. Exactly. And it was big. Pitch black. And he's seated there. Instead of panicking, Dr. Miller did what he had always done every day. He began pondering the glory of Christ. Oh, yes, that snake that was coming up his leg and, yes, going across his lap was obviously on the periphery of his consciousness. Duh. But he began contemplating the magnificence of Christ, his works. In a sense, he did what the disciples should have been doing. In a sense, he followed Jesus and watched him declare to the twelve his compassion for the needy crowd. In a sense, Dr. Miller stood next to Jesus and watched him pull the bread from the seven loaves and do that miracle. In a sense, he sat next to Jesus on the boat listening to his give the warning to his disciples. And indeed, he walked with Jesus and watched him heal a blind man. When that snake got off of his lap and off of his body, he just jumped out of the outhouse door, boom, like this, ran into the house, got a flashlight, came back, opened the door, and in the corner was a nine-foot black mumba, one of the most aggressive, dangerous snakes in the world. One missionary told me he had been in Africa for some time. Twenty people had been bitten by black mambas, and twenty people died. Yet in the midst of a terrifying situation, Dr. Miller simply bathed his mind with the beauty and glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are often overwhelmed by the mundane and miss the majesty of the Messiah. Father, as we deliberate upon the compassion of Jesus that moved him to action, the feeding of the 4,000, our souls rejoice and our hearts cry out, Hallelujah, what a Savior. In thy name we pray, amen.